Welcome to the U.S. Expansion Series, the podcast where you can learn about successfully expanding to and scaling your business in the U.S. markets. My name is Fleur. My name is Flora. And in every episode, we dive into a different aspect of a successful market expansion. Flora, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Happy to be here. For this episode, you spoke to London-based lawyer Daniel Glazer And you two discussed how a European company should set up and scale in the U.S. How did your conversation go? It was a great conversation. He has so much experience assisting companies with their U.S. expansion. And we've been working with him for over two years now. And it's been a great pleasure to collaborate with him. Over this episode, he shares a lot of information from how to set up a local entity, using agents to get the first boots on the ground in the U.S., and eventually raising funds from U.S. investors. Wow, that's a lot of valuable information. I guess be prepared to take notes for the listeners. Well, without further ado, let's dive in. Ben, thanks so much for joining our podcast today. We're so excited to do this podcast with you especially since you have so much experience assisting European companies that expand to the US. Uh, But before we dive into all of this, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about what you do? Sure, sure thing. Thanks a lot for having me today. Uh, So my name is Dan Glazer. I'm the uh, London office managing partner at the Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, Wilson Sonsini. A little bit about Wilson. Um, So we were the first law firm Uh, in Silicon Valley to work with tech companies Uh, back in the early 1960s when the first venture funds were formed to invest in tech companies. And our model is sort of to work with garage stage startups, as it were, and scale with them up to IPO and then beyond as a public company. Probably our our, uh, best known example is that we worked to uh, incorporate Google as a company uh, for Larry and Sergey back in the the late 1990s. we then uh, worked with them when they went public in 2004, and and we, we still work with them today. Um, so currently, we're, we're about 1,100 lawyers, Silicon Valley headquartered with uh, 13 offices around the United States. All we do is focus on working with technology and life sciences companies. Um, so I head up our London office and our U.S. expansion team. Um, and our London office is a team of about 30 U.S. And, and dual qualified U.K., U.S. corporate tech lawyers that work with European startups through their U.S. life cycle, launch, scale, raise venture capital, and then exit through M&A or IPO in the United States. Everything from, let's say, uh, accelerator stage team that goes to San Francisco to raise a seed round, all the way up to companies that think about listing on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Um, But the most common point we start to engage, and what I'm sure we'll talk more about today, is when a company comes to us with one of two questions. We're looking to launch in the US. What do we do next? Or we are looking to raise money in the US. What do we do next? Because we receive the question often, like, of course, for most European startups, the U.S. is a very attractive market with a lot of potential. And we have a lot of conversations with companies that are interested in the U.S. And they often ask us, when is it the right time to expand to the U.S.? When is our company ready for it? So, yeah, do you have any general advice for companies that are interested in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, we, we, we find that the companies that are the most successful coming out of uh, Europe, going to the United States, are the ones that go early or the ones that go late. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Going early is when, let, let, let's say you've got a founding team in, in Europe and they look at the U.S. market and they say, you know what? 
that's really going to be our, our, our big market. That's the market that we're going to decide that we're going to design our product offering for in the first place. And so they will often move management, let's say the, you know, the founding team to the United States and let, and keep uh, engineering and development, other back office functions back in Europe, but they will build, build out the company specifically to tackle the, the US market from fairly early in, in the company's life cycle. They then will raise money from US investors as if they were a homegrown US startup, because in some ways they are a homegrown US startup. You know, and, and they will scale as a US-led European business. Right? That's, that's what I mean by, by, by go early. Now, that was, I think, a lot more common, let's say, seven, 10 years ago, um, when there wasn't as ro robust of a venture capital ecosystem in Europe, and we, we still do 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 see some companies follow that 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 model, um, but it used to be let's say more prevalent be, be, because you saw uh, founding teams come out of Europe, let's say unable to raise early stage capital. That is a lot. That's a lot less likely now, um, and and so going late is is we 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 see as the much more more common model. And by go late is is I mean the following: company starts in in Europe um, and initially designs its product offering for it it its home market, and then raises let's say a seed round and maybe even an A round from local or maybe pan European venture capital investors. And then eventually it gets pulled into the US by customer traction or user growth, right? Like it's a B2B SaaS business that, you know, starts to get more and more U U US customers and more and more portion of its ARR, greater portion of its ARR is coming out of the United States. It's a B2C company that that starts to see significant user up up uptake, customer update uh, to up uptake from the United States. And eventually, they look at the U.S. market and say, um, "There's real product market fit there, or we are close to product market fit there." So, what they'll typically do is either, let's say, hire part-time contractors at first, but then eventually um, hire em 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 employees and maybe even send some people over from HQ to help scale up the, the, the business in, in the states, knowing that 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 they've got product market fit or close to it. In other words, they've de-risked market entry by that initial customer traction and user growth selling in remotely um, from from Europe. Um, and then they, they, they'll, they'll build from there as a transatlantic business and maybe raise their next round from, from US-based in investors. It's that going in the middle that ends up being a little bit tricky, right? That uh, and, but it's, it's tempting, right? I mean, the US is a massive um, commercial market. It has plentiful venture capital. It seems like everybody's willing to buy tech there, um, and 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 so you know sometimes we'll see companies that get started in Europe, but before they've built a strong enough foundation in Europe, before they've built sufficient product market fit, then they they try to also go at the U.S. simultaneously, and trying to to build on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time without having product market fit in both, is very very difficult. Right. It's 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 um, because then it, it's difficult yeah. to focus if you go in the well, middle. It's well, first thing, it's it's expensive, right? Be, be, because what and it's expensive in terms of money. It's expensive in terms of time. Right. You're, you're still trying to, to, to build a foundation in your home market. Yet now you're, you're, let's say, hiring people in the U.S. who generally have higher salaries than, than in Europe. 
you're sort of taking your eye off the ball to some extent from your home market while devoting time and energy and money to the United States, which is a very demanding market to get right. And that's fine if, you, if you've built a foundation in Europe, you've got people in Europe who can mine the store, as it were, while you know, others focus on the US. But if, you've, if you haven't built that found foundation and found that product market fit in Europe, and at the same time, you're going into what's arguably the most competitive market in the world, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're in that early phase, you're interested in a market, you want to see if you have product market fit there, if you have traction there, uh, you're first going to sell remotely. But I can imagine that it's then an a great way to work with agents so that you still have that boots on the ground uh, without having to set up a real presence or subsidiary there. We'll talk about that later, but that of course has yeah, a whole different level of requirements. Um, but how easy is it for European companies to work with US agents? Are there any yeah. legal risks there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a very common middle, middle ground, let, let's say middle step um, be, between only selling in remotely from a purely European-based business with no one on the ground in the U.S., that's on the one hand. And on the, on the other hand is setting up a proper U.S. subsidiary, hiring employees out of that sub subsidiary and having you know, a, 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 a proper U.S. business. Um, in between, and again, this is a very common intermediate step, is to hire contractors, sales, sales agents, consultants, but ultimately you know, non-employee contractors who in a matter of speaking, can fly the flag for your European business, you know, with it, with sort of a light touch uh, structure. In other words, you can generally hire those individuals out of a European parent company without creating a U.S. subsidiary, right? So it's it's sort of a structure light approach to to going to market in the U.S. You have individuals who are sort of your people on the ground in the United States. But without the the sort of the the sort of corporate structure, the, the benefits packages, you know, all all the rest that would be associated with with setting up a, a proper you know employment structure with a subsidiary in the U.S. You know that's a great model, and and it's and as I said, it, it's a very common intermediate step. I would say the 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 biggest risk uh, in the United States to, to to doing this is is sort of what I what I I, I sort of. Have the following analogy, right? If it if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck in the United States, even if you contractually stipulate that it's a goose, right? Here's what I mean by that: is that just because you have a, a signed written contract with someone saying that they are a contractor does not mean that they will be deemed to be a contractor under the laws of the relevant state, right? Because whether someone is an employee or, or not in the U.S. is not dictated, not determined by whether or not they have a formal employment contract in, in place, right? Like, for, for example, if you called me up tomorrow and I was sitting in, in, in the U.S. and you said, I want you to work for me. And I said, sure. And then I started working for you the next day. I'm going to be deemed to be an employee. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so... What I mean by like it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, is that if you bring someone in as a, and you have a, a, this nice written contract saying that they're a contractor, but you, you know, they're your you know, VP of sales North America and they work 40 to 50 hours a week uh, you know, and, and everything else about them looks like an employee, but they have this nice contractor agreement. 
the chances are that they're probably going to be deemed to be an employee, right? And but this is it's interesting because this is a state by state issue. Remember, the United States, the reason they call it the United States is that it's 50 different states. It says it on the tin, United States. Um, you know, and it's it's yes, it's a single country, but it also has, you know, 50 different legal and tax systems. And for example, you know, while it may be relatively straightforward to hire contractors in New York, in California, you know, it, it's much more likely that your contractors are going to be deemed to be, in fact, employees. So not only do you have to be careful about this point in general when hiring contractors, but you really need to be careful about it specifically, um, you know, on a state by state basis. You know, what are the rules now? You know, we we certainly work with enough high growth startups to, to know that, yeah, it, you know, it's easy to say, yes, this is a risk and that's a risk and you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. I, you know, certainly when when you are building a high growth, you know, fast moving company, sometimes you have to cut corners, um, you know, not that you you should, but it's understandable. Right. This is not, however, a, a corner that, that that is a good one to cut. Right. Because what can happen is, is that eventually when you end up, let's say, terminating that relationship as the company, you know, with your uh, contractor on the ground in, in, in the U.S., if you're not careful, that can turn into a dispute where the individual um, you know, claims that they were actually an, an, an employee, not a contractor. Right. And then, um, you know, and, and then make certain threats uh, as a as a terminated employee against the company. And, that, and that's going to have to be handled. So the, the, the best approach is to just avoid this issue in the first place and may, may make sure that if you're hiring contractors, they're properly contractors. And if it's in, instead, if they're really intended to be employees, well, setting up a structure subsidiary and everything that goes around it is not that difficult. And once you're ready to have a physical presence, what are the legal considerations for setting up in the US? Sure. Over time, there really has been developed sort of best practice for um, that, that point in a European company's life cycle where it says, right, I'm going to hire my first US employee. What do we do next? Right. So I, I'll give you the sort of you know standard operating model of what that 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 typically looks like. So more often than 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 not, the company is going to to the the European parent company is going to set up a a, a Delaware incorporated wholly owned subsidiary of the European parent company. And let me let me break that down. So why Delaware? As a headline, Delaware reduces friction. <laughs> uh, I, I can go deeper than that, but that really is the headline, right? Delaware reduces friction. Um, long ago, De Delaware established itself as the, as the sort of state of choice for incorporation in the United States. It has a very clear set of corporate governance rules. It's, uh, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. It's certainly efficient to, to set up in, in, in Delaware. It actually doesn't really have anything to do with, 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 with tax, which is sort of a common um, I think misnomer, you know, yeah. out, 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 outside of the U.S. No, it, it's not really tax at all. It just is. It it, it has very predictable, very uh, very good corporate governance laws, and it just it reduces friction when when you're going to market in in the United States. Um, in fact, when when you know we can talk about this later, and if you're thinking about creating a parent company in the United States or incorporating in the United States, let's say without a European parent company, you know, keep in mind that the entire venture capital ecosystem in the United States is built on a foundation of investing into Delaware corporations. Um, it doesn't mean that U.S. investors won't invest 
uh, in something other than a Delaware corporation. It, it's just that the earlier stage you are, the more that they will prefer to invest in a Delaware corporation. But that's sort of a different point, right? If you're if you're if you're going to market as a European parent company, simply hiring in, in the U.S., you're pretty much every time going to want to think about incorporating in, in, in Delaware, and it's always going to be a subsidiary generally. You know, unless you are sort of currently raising money um, from from U.S. investors and they insist on investing into a, a U.S. parent company, um, the the easiest way to think of it is is, is this: um, the the decision to create a a Delaware subsidiary is a commercial and operational decision. The decision to create a Delaware parent company is solely an investor driven decision. In other words, unless U.S. In, 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 in investor demands or requirements end up playing playing into the consideration. If you're going to market in the U.S. and you already have a European parent company, to the extent that you need a, a U.S. company to do whatever it is that you want to do, that can that can typically be accomplished through a, a Delaware subsidiary. Now, the one thing that I've been staying away from because I just want I, want, I, I wanted to talk about in a little more detail is what form of entity should that subsidiary take. Right. And the, the, the two most common choices are a Delaware corporation, otherwise known as an Inc., um, or a Delaware limited liability company, commonly referred to as an LLC. Um, and I'll tell you, the, now that one, the answer really is determined by, by, by tax, although it actually tends to be the, the, the tax rules of the home market of the, the, uh, of, of the parent companies. Uh, home market ta tax rules. See, because the, the, the big difference here between a corporation and an LLC for, for purposes of creating a subsidiary of a, of a European parent company um, is that a, a corporation is a taxable entity. In other words, the corporation is itself taxed for its activities, whereas an LLC by default is a tax pass-through entity. Um, and depending on the, the, the home market tax rules of the parent company, right, a corporation, the taxable entity, or the LLC, a tax pass-through entity, may be, may be preferable. And you just need to determine which is preferable um, under the, 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 the tax rules of the local jurisdiction. I will tell you, broadly speaking, most of the time, the feedback that we get from tax advisors in, European, in the different European countries tends to be corporation rather than LLC. However, some, sometimes it is LLC. So I, I, you know, that's one that, that, that we usually re re recommend to companies that they just confirm with their home market tax advisors that corporation is the right answer before we, we go ahead and do that. Because from a legal standpoint, either one's fine. This tr truly is a, a, a tax point, right? So, all right. So now we have a, let, but let, let's assume for the sake of this discussion, we have a Delaware corporation subsidiary. What do we do next? All right. So you've got your Delaware Corporation subsidiary. Yeah. And let's say for the sake of argument that you're going to hire your first employees in the state of New York. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you're going to then register to do business as a foreign Delaware corporation operating in the state of New York, right? With the Secretary of State's office of, of, of New York. Yeah. And you are going to give your New York employees two employment documents, right? A New York state specific. IP assignment and confidentiality agreement, which does what it says on the tin, as they say, <laughs> right? And a uh, New York state-specific offer letter, which has the economics and the financials of the arrangement. And every time that you go to a new state, you're going to 
engage in those same activities over again. So let's say that your next state is California. You're going to then, when you hire in California, you're going to register your Delaware corporation um, as an entity doing business in California. And you are going to provide the employees in California with California state specific employment documents. Very important. Do not simply cross out New York and write California <laughs> in your employment documents. Because again, I, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago, each state has its own unique employment rules. So now you've, you've, you've set up in, 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 let's say, in New York with your first employees there. And let's say that you want to provide options to them, right? You want to provide yeah. up. And so a, co a couple of things about that, right? First of all, it is generally always going to come out of the parent company, right? Not out of the sub. Because the value of the enterprise is in the parent company, right? And if, if you're an employee in the United States, you, you are going to want the equity in where the value of the company lies, which is in the parent, in, in the sub, de, de, depending how things work, work out with the sub, you may end up trying to take money out of the sub and put it into the parent. And you know, if you're getting equity in that, um, um, in that entity, that might not be a great outcome as, a, uh, you know, as, as an employee. Um, most importantly, when you're providing options to U.S. employees, and this, the specific structure of how you do this is going to d differ depending on what, when, what your home market entity is, right? Whether it's a, you know, a German GmbH or a UK Limited, et cetera. But, but yeah. what will generally always be, be true is that you're going to need to get a specific U.S. Internal Revenue Service compliant valuation, right, in order, in order to do that. Um, that you should not assume that your home market valuation in Europe is, is going to meet the test and the standards for the U.S. Internal Revenue Service for the tax authorities. So you're going to get what's called a 409A valuation, right? And that's going to be tied to the fair market value of, of the enterprise. And that will allow you to provide potentially tax advantaged um, equity or options to U.S. employees and, and, and stay away from potential tax penalties down the road. And do you yeah. see if you want to be able to find and attract great talent in the U.S., it's necessary to offer options? Yeah, um, generally speaking, yes, in the respect that American, start, uh, employ, American employees of startups are typically compared to, to, to European employees, a little bit more focused on the potential upside associated with, with, with options. I think part of that stems from, from, from the fact that you know, the U.S. venture-backed tech ecosystem has been going since the, since the 1960s, and there have been many, many, many examples of, of employees of startups that have ended up having significant outcomes from sizable M&A or I, IPO exits. And, and it's part of the, of the motivation um, of many American employees in, in joining a startup is that potential upside. So American employees on average, you know, will tend to be a little bit more focused on what does my option package look like? Who are, who are the company's VCs, right? And are they VC investors who are likely to, who have a track record of helping take their portfolio companies to, to big exits, right? Like in, in other words, your, your, um, Think of American employees, at least many American employees in this regard, as looking at your business almost in the same way that a VC will look at your business, because they are, in some respects, acting in a, in a manner that is analogous to, your, to a potential VC, right? They are betting with their time, their time, being, their time spent being employed by, by, by the company, and they're doing it in part 
much like your VC is investing their money in part for the big exit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, you, you do want to, in America, in a way that you might not see it as much in Europe, you know, you are going to want to present yourself in a manner that, that, that shows a potential big, big, big outcome um, to, the, to your employees. Yeah. Um, to sort of cover off on, on the legal side of setup, um, I mean, those are the three main areas, right? Incorporation of the subsidiary, uh, employment documents, and then, and then options, you know, employee equity. There's a few other areas to think about when, when you go to the U.S., there's, you know, extending your patents and trademarks from your home market to the United States to the extent that that's relevant. Um, there's Americanizing um, your terms and conditions or other contracts for the American market. Um, and then finally, there's uh, data, data privacy, right? The U.S. doesn't, um, you know, isn't bound by GDPR. It has its own data, data privacy rules. And you're, you're, if applicable, you're going to want to make sure that you comply with those as well. So it would be tax accounting, banking, business insurance, and, and H, um, payroll and benefits. And, you know, it's very common in, in, in the United States to, to work with, let's say, what, what's called a professional employer organization or a PEO once you have the subsidiary. And a PEO co-employs employees together with the sub subsidiary, which allows the subsidiary to leverage the PEO's retirement benefits plan, health insurance plan, and payroll system so as to leverage the economies of scale and get a better deal on that, right? rather than go to market with a small handful of, of employees um, and allows them to sort of, um, you know, outsource it so as to not re re reinvent the wheel. Um, and from a cost standpoint, by far the, the, the greatest cost is people, yeah. right? Salaries in the U.S. tend to be higher, especially in the larger cities in America, they tend to be much higher than the equivalent salaries in Europe and payroll and, and benefits tends to be materially higher than in um in the in in Europe, because we uh, we have typically employer provided healthcare in, in in the United States as as standard. Yeah, we often when we have conversations with new companies that are thinking of the U.S. market, we have to prepare them already a little bit for the salaries, the healthcare, and the costs associated with it. It's always but a bit of a scare. But you know that's uh, that's why we often say. I mean, the the, the U.S. is 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 sort of an ROI play. Right? Yeah, it's a return yeah. on investment play. That you, and and it's it's why it's so Im important to to make sure that you're being, as I mentioned before, pulled into the U.S. by customer traction and user growth. Yeah, and that like, you're really yeah, sure. ready to go to the U.S. markets. That you can do right. the investment. Yeah. That that if you know if you're going to go after the U.S., it will generally be more expensive than your home market if you're a European-based company. However, the upside is potentially massive if you get it right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and you know, we, we certainly talk to plenty of European companies that are, I think, a little bit concerned about the price. And, you know, they, they should definitely be thoughtful about the cost of going to the US. But, you know, if, if you can make, you know, if, if you're head of sales in New York who might cost a couple hundred thousand dollars or, or, or more, um, is going to make you several million of more or more. Maybe that investment makes sense, yeah. right? But you, but what you don't necessarily want to invest in that in, individual unless you've got some confidence yeah. that you've got sufficient product market fit that that individual is is going to be able to sell successfully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you already said a little bit about U.S. VCs and the Delaware flip. So if you have the subsidiary uh, and you want to raise funds in the U.S., can you tell us a little bit more about what U.S. investors typically look for in European companies? Sure. Um, 
you know, and I think it, it, it really kind of depends on the stage of, of, uh, of, of the business. I mean, and, and as a, as a rule of thumb, what I'll, I always highlight is, you know, seed tends to be local. Series yeah. A tends to be um, national or perhaps regional if you're in Europe. And B and beyond is global. And, you know, I always say don't get too caught up in, in the specific, you know, names of, of the rounds. Um, it, it's rather a seed. It's rather more of a profile, right? A, a, a seed profile round, right? Whether it's technically an A or technically a seed or a pre-seed or whatever, tends to end up being more often than, than not local. A series A profile round, again, whether it's called a seed or a B or an A, tends to be more national or regional and a, and a profile of a B and beyond company ten, tends to be global. And, and what that leads to is that more often than not, for, a, for an early stage European company to raise around from US-based VCs, um, you typically need to have a pretty strong U.S. story. Now, let me break down what what I what I mean by that. So, you know, we're sort of we're we're, we're talking about the same terms, right? Um, when we when we talk about you, when I talk about U.S. VCs here, what I mean are U.S. based VC funds that are investing out of the United States and do not have individuals on the ground in Europe, right? So, yeah. for example, you know, I'm, I'm based in in London. There are, I think. Roughly three dozen or so funds um, that are U.S.-based funds that have that have set up in in London or outside of London over the past few few years, you know, they are there in part to make it easier for those funds to invest in earlier stage European companies, right? So when I talk about you know what the profile of the company needs to be to raise from U.S. VCs, I don't mean those funds yeah, because those yeah, yeah. th- th- those funds are local essentially and are able to invest almost in a stage agnostic way. To the extent that they are that they have a stage agnostic investment thesis, right? That yeah. that, that that they can they can invest regardless of of uh, geography in Europe, as the same way that if they were sort of homegrown European funds. But what I mean is is that if you've got U.S. based funds without any without anyone on the ground in Europe, and you've got European let's say seed seed stage or even Series A stage businesses that have nobody on the ground in 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 the US, well, then it gets a little bit tricky. I mean, you really do need to have a strong US story. And we, we usually break that down into um, four, there, there's usually four types of European companies at seed or series A that end up getting um, funded by US-based VCs as a lead investor, participating with a, let's say a US VC participating in a round with a, with a European lead is a little bit easier because they don't have to take the board seat, they don't have to take the, they don't have to set the terms, they can rely on, on, on the local European-based lead investor to drive the deal. But if you're talking about bringing in a US VC to lead the deal at Cedar Series A um, into a European company, usually, what, there's one of four dynamics at play, right? The first is let's say that they have management um, on the uh, on on the ground in 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 the U.S. Right? Okay. There's no sort of bright line as to what that means. Like, sure, if you've got the CEO on the ground in the U.S., that's probably the the, the clearest one. But like, you know, head of sales is that good enough? Well, it really kind of comes down to this: Can the the U.S. V, v, VC or the or the fund? You know, is that individual senior enough so that working the VC fund working with that individual can really kind of move the needle, as it were, to, to help build the the the, yeah. the, the U.S. business, right? Um, 
The, 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 the second is going to be what is the company's traction in the United States, right? In other words, let's say it's a B2B SaaS company that, that's got $3 million in ARR, right? A company that in that $3 million in ARR that's got 2.5 of it coming from U.S. customers, right, and with 150% year-on-year growth is going to look very different to a U.S. VC than a European company that's got 3 million ARR with maybe, you know, 50,000 of it coming from the United States with 40% year-on-year growth, right? Yeah. Again, it goes to how strong the U.S. story is. Yeah. Um, the third might, might I, I would say the third dynamic that might lead to U.S. investment is, you know, does the, does the man, what experience does the management team have building a U.S. business or raising from U.S. investors previously? I mean, we've certainly seen highly experienced European founders who have raised from U.S. investors in their prior business be able to attract relatively early stage U.S. funding um, because, frankly, they, 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 they present themselves as being a good bet right, uh, to, to U.S. investors who have seen those individuals succeed before. Right? And yeah. especially at the early stage of investment, a lot of it really is, is, is about the quality of, of the team, not, ne- not necessarily um, so much the metrics. And then, and then the fourth dynamic is simply, have you truly built the better mousetrap, right? In other words, <laughs> is, is, your start, is, is your startup truly, you know, spinning straw into gold? Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is that, look, if there really isn't any U.S. angle at all, certainly every once in a while, we, 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 we see a startup come out of Europe, even at the early stage, that is, that has, is truly doing something completely re- revolutionary, 10x better than any U.S. company is doing. You know what? That's pretty interesting as, as well. But but I would say the vast majority of the time, when you see a U.S.-based VC lead a seed or Series A round into a European company, one of those four dynamics is typically at at, at yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, we're running out of time almost. I feel like we could go on for hours. Uh, I have one last question. I'm personally always very fascinated by culture. And you are, of course, an American who's living in London. You're working with European, UK, uh, US startups. Are there any common cultural differences that you notice when Europeans are doing business in the US? So I, I think what, what, I'll, what I'll highlight is, is one of the, the unique aspects of of, of the, the United States, right? And, 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 that, and that I think that is the, the sort of the size and, and, and the scale of, uh, of kind of everything, but especially of potential outcomes uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in a venture-backed tech e- ecosystem. So I'll, I'll give you an, an, an anecdote that sort of illustrates what, what I mean by that. <clears throat> so if, a number of years ago, uh, I was with a, with 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 a group of Euro- European companies uh, in in the Bay Area, and there there, there, there was a fund in in the Bay Area that that that, that gave a talk about um, Silicon Valley venture economics, uh, you know, and 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 the VC said something along the lines of the following: They said, "Listen, you know, we like pretty much every fund in Sil- Silicon Valley is is looking to invest in companies that can return the fund or more. Not that will return the fund or more. Obviously, we we, we can't expect them to." You know, guarantee that for us, but at least have a credible pathway to return the fund or more if everything breaks right, right? Um, and if there is no possible credible pathway for the company to return the fund or more, then the opportunity cost of investing into the company is is too great. Even though there might be a relatively high likelihood of a smaller outcome, 
be, be, because we are looking as a Silicon Valley fund for um, fund returning opportunities, right? We need to see that, that credible pathway to returning the fund. And he said, think about how that actually plays out in practice. Um, you know, the, the VC said, so we, we take um, typically 10% when we invest and, and we have roughly you know, a $300 million fund. He said, that means that we need to, to, we need to invest in companies that have a credible pathway to, to, to showing a $3 billion exit. Right? Yeah. And I remember the group of European companies I was with, there was like an audible gasp in, <laughs> in, in, in the room, right? But that's, that's the, you know, what, the way that you know, a lot of certainly traditional Silicon Valley style American investors are, are, are viewing the world. Right is is that they are willing to 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 bet on the massive potential upside, even though the the risk of let's say lo- losing you know the, the company zeroing out may may be high as well, and I, and I don't think you historically you haven't seen quite that same high risk high reward di- di- dynamic in in Europe for better or for worse. To be clear, I'm not saying that one is better than than than, than the other. Um, but I, I do think that that some European companies that we speak with are su- su- surprised that you know a lot of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley style U.S. investors will readily pass on what seems to be a relatively certain but but smaller outcome <laughs> for the possibility yeah. of the massive outcome. Okay, well, thanks so much, Dan. Uh, this was very helpful. I think it will be very helpful for a lot of companies that are interested in the U.S. That was your conversation with Den. Go early or go late? That is the question. Exactly. And Den describes so well that the biggest chance for success is when a company gets pulled into the US by customer demand. And we've seen many companies over the years that didn't have the time and resources yet to fully focus on the US market. So I guess in Den's category, these companies would indeed fall into the middle. That's very interesting. Also regarding the ESOPs, which we should dedicate a separate episode to, but especially for SaaS and tech companies, it's important to offer options when you want to attract great talent. And I didn't realize that employees in startups in the US are even more focused on having a stake in the company. But I guess it makes a lot of sense. So if you're a European company looking to either launch and scale in the US or raise funds in the US, you should reach out to Daniel Glazer at Wilson Sonsini. Well, thank you, Flora. And thanks to all the listeners. Please subscribe, like, and share. You can find the US Expansion Series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 